a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, welcome back. Nathan Rome is with you. Today, we have some big topics of justice and bail reform that we're going to get to. For that, I have the Minister of Justice for the province of Alberta, Mickey Amory, on the show. Minister Amory was sworn in on June 9th, 2023, after serving as the Minister of Children's Services. Prior to service as an elected official, he was a practicing lawyer and business owner in Calgary, Alberta, and he worked on cases of national significance in the areas of Aboriginal law and consumer protection. Minister Amory holds a bachelor's degree in political science, a bachelor's in economics, and a Juris Doctorate degree in law. Uh, he has a wife and three children that he finds time for and among doing all these other things. Uh, so happy to have you here today, uh, Minister. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation today. Yeah, I'm glad we could get you in. Um, and I was saying just offline, uh, and I'll say to the audience, just in case my voice is probably going to sound weird to them today, because you're used to hearing it a certain way, but I'm fighting a crazy head cold right now. But there was no way I would cancel. Uh, so the magic of Zoom and the internet, we can do this and don't have to worry about being in person. <laughs> hey, you're coming through loud and clear on my end. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, the magic of Zoom really does allow us to do this pretty much anywhere. So yeah, it'll be fun. Um, I kind of want to start just talking about you uh, and, and just, if we can, talk about maybe growing up uh, some life experiences. But what I'd like to really get to is uh, kind of what brought you into the world of conservative politics. And, you know, usually for people, uh, they kind of have certain life experiences or maybe their parents have a big influence. But um, if you could talk about yourself growing up and uh, how you got into this world. Yeah, wonderful uh, topic. Um, so born and raised uh, in Calgary, Alberta. I'm an Alberta boy uh, through and through. Uh, I am the uh, son of parents who immigrated to Canada in the 1970s. And they came from a small country in, uh, in the Middle East called Lebanon. So they immigrated to Alberta. Uh, we spent our entire lives here, for most of their lives and all of mine, certainly. Uh, growing up in a predominantly... Uh, newcomer family was was interesting because it posed some of the challenges that you know we typically uh see and hear about uh, some of the things with uh challenges to uh, language or challenges to kind of understanding the the you know societal uh, issues i think was was an interesting uh, way of growing up because we had the perspective as as children of, of those immigrants uh immigrant parents we had the perspective of being able to really uh understand things from two different very different worlds, I would say. And so that was an interesting way of growing up. But it also, I think, uh, added a significant layer, if you will, to my upbringing. And it allowed me to uh, see and, and hear about things that we typically would not have heard about otherwise. Uh, the opportunity to see different parts of the world, the opportunity to see how things really worked well here, um, and the challenges that my parents faced in growing up in, a, in an environment and in a, in, a, um, in a country where we don't have the typical freedoms and the typical uh, um, the, the uh, opportunities, I guess, if you will, 
uh, to to do the things that uh, we we are all able to do here. But it was very important to me, and I think that held to me very closely, near and dear. I remember hearing about some of the um, you know the, the the ways that governments across the world. Uh, operate and, and learning about that some somewhat firsthand gave me a, a unique perspective into how um, how grateful many people are uh, when they come to Canada, including my parents and myself. And I think that just being able to grow up in a in a, an environment like that gave me a, a very very unique and and I think advantageous perspective when it came to uh, going into politics. Now, politics is another interesting topic because. I come from a family. I come from a, uh, a family that has very much been involved in, in the conservative movement for a very long time. My father uh, first became involved with the Progressive Conservative Party in the early 80s and ran in the uh, 1986 and 1989 provincial elections unsuccessfully. He then uh, continued on, and, and he used to always say third time's a charm, and he, uh, he ran in the 1993 election as the progressive conservative candidate, and he was very successful in that particular election uh, under the Ralph team. Uh, he continued on for six consecutive terms. I'm very proud of that. He served uh, this province uh, with integrity for, for many, many years. And we, were, we grew up in a household that was uh, very much a conservative household. It uh, it very much also aligned with some of the ideologies uh, that my parents had brought with them, and some of that that I think are very important. And one of those is is really being, um, you know, responsible government, responsible to the people, accountable to um, the 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 constituents, and and making sure that we, whatever we do, we do in a manner that we would do within our own homes. And that's really where my conservative ideologies lie. If I'm going to do something. I want it to be something that I would typically do for myself as well. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to approve a project or a spend or whatever that may be, I need it to embody what I would do in my own personal budget. And I think that's really important to know because I think it forms the basis for all of my conservative values. If I'm, you know, if, if we're going to do something, it must be done in a way that is fiscally responsible and effective and efficient. And I think all of those things can be achieved if you take the time to really look at what you're trying to do. So, you know, there are any number of different areas that one might characterize as being, you know, sort of conservative values. And I really would like all the viewers to, to, to hear and, and listen when I say that, you know, when it comes to fiscal management, fiscal, you know, prudent management, um, fiscal conservatives uh, and being responsible with the public purse, that first and foremost uh, forms the basis uh, of my political ideologies. And I think I try to embody that in everything that I do. Well, I think yeah, you bring up a good point there. And that's a big topic, especially nowadays, is where are dollars being spent? And I mean, it gets asked throughout time, but I think that's a real big focus nowadays is where exactly is every dollar going right down to the penny? It's like, is the accountability there? Are we spending it? We're getting the best bang for the buck, I guess. Um, and you blew my mind right off the top when you said that you're Lebanese. With the name Mickey and you have fire red hair, people would never guess <laughs> that you're from uh, Middle East background. Are you like both parents are from Lebanon? 
Yeah, full parents were, were born and raised in Lebanon. But look, I like to say this. I like to say this. And, um, you know, that, that part of the world saw a number of different uh, peoples uh, over, over the past uh, centuries and millennia. And, and the truth of the matter is, it just shows, goes to show you how small this world truly is. Uh, many different types of people have, have been through that area, many different types yeah. of the cult and, and customs and traditions and, 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 you know, and everything else under the sun has really come through that area. And so, you know, probably somewhere back in the lineage there, there's probably some Scottish or Irish background. I don't, know. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as I can tell you, I've, uh, you know, both parents were born and raised in Lebanon. So, um, I was able to, uh, to uh, learn the language, I was able to, um, you know, uh, uh, speak it fluently. Uh, I can read and write at a, you know, more basic level, I guess. Uh, but uh, certainly, again, it, it has given me an appreciation for uh, being able to uh, understand, firstly, uh, some of the, um, you know, some of the different uh, customs and, and some of the different ideas that come from abroad. And, and also to sympathize with it and make sure that mm -hmm. whatever I do uh, also embodies, in addition to that financial component, but also embodies a, uh, a, a considering the, the views of, of people from elsewhere and making sure that their views are adequately respected and represented as well. Do you find in all your travels that a lot of people that come, you know, maybe first generation, maybe second, but uh, especially those newcomers, are they generally conservative in in your experiences, or do you find that they come over and they're more maybe they're more liberal? No, I would certainly, I certainly and genuinely believe that most newcomers are conservative in nature. Uh, what that means is this: every every newcomer family that I've ever uh, had the uh, had an encounter with ha has been uh, fiscally conservative, meaning that they didn't either have the luxury nor do they have the desire to spend frivolously um you know immigrants have to be very careful about what they do because a lot of them have come to to canada with very little and i think that's important to keep in mind family is a huge thing family both in the, the conservative movement and in immigrant families is is i think a fundamental and key component so for me you mentioned earlier you know i've got these three wonderful kids and uh i, I try to find time for them but I, I also want to make sure that everything, every decision that I'm fortunate enough to make is, is something that they can hold their head up high in and make sure that they can defend it in the future. And I want to be able to do the same thing. Yeah. So when it comes to, you know, the fiscal responsibility, when it comes to faith, when it comes to family, I call them the three F's and I spoke about them for years now, but those three F's are really that basis for conservative values. And they also embody what I think the vast majority of Albertans, both from here and those who uh, who have come here very recently, embody in their own lives. So yes, absolutely, and that's why I would say to you, Nathan, that when I talk about you know conservative values uh, and we attribute them to those three Fs: family, faith, and fiscal conservative uh, fiscal responsibility. I think that all of those describe uh, the vast majority of Albertans to a T. Well, and I think uh, yeah, you have a good point there. It's it's hard to find, at least on social media and all that in all the headlines nowadays, people that are forward-looking like that and think, okay, what are my kids going to think of me in the future and what are they going to say about the decisions that I made? Um, I find that's kind of what attracts me more to the conservative values. Uh, and whereas nowadays, a lot of people are just um, kind of about 
self-gratification. They just want the quick uh, uh, satisfaction. It's like no time is spent on kind of looking into the future. So that, that too is something that kind of speaks to me. Um, same with the F, uh, three Fs that you're talking about. Um, just before we do get on to justice and bail reform, I did want to ask to, and this is like a personal question, but it's uh, um, when it comes to the provincial and the federal side of politics, how much overlap is there? How much talking goes on back and forth between the two? Because sometimes you see federal politicians or provincial ones, they'll echo each other across party lines. But um, sometimes if you look at like the NDP party, a lot of people think like the Alberta NDP is very different than the BC one. Which is, and then they're very different than the federal level. But when I look at the conservative side, it seems like a more consistent theme throughout. Like they're kind of echoing the same message, and delivering the same message. So, uh, how much back and forth is there, federal to provincial? Well, excellent question once again, and and one that really takes a lot of thought to talk about. Uh, I think what you mentioned in, in your comments. Uh, is really important to highlight, and that is that the, the consistency that Albertans and indeed Canadians have when it comes to the conservative movement is almost uniform all across the country. Um, we advocate for the same social programs and the same opportunities and the same advantages uh, that many parties do. And I think that what really differentiates us from other parties is the ability to take the time to ask the question of why. Now, there's a lot of people that will tell you what they need and what they want. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of uh, initiatives that are uh, developed through the various ministries and departments where a need is, is identified. But nobody, very few people start asking the question of why. Why are we spending this much money? Yeah. Uh, and specifically, what is it going to achieve? And is the, are those dollars being allocated in the best way possible? I think that's incredibly important because what you'll see consistently throughout the country is every party makes a number of promises. And I think that the difference between uh, a party like the Conservative Party, and that this is consistent all across Canada, or another party like a left-leaning party is that we also ask the question of why. Uh, we don't why are we doing this and what are we going to get out of it? And I think those are very important questions for every single thing we do. Are we getting uh, the best bang for our buck when it comes to spending public money? Is there a better way of doing this? Why did you come up with this particular idea? Right. Yeah. And uh, far too often what we see in other areas of the, pro of the country are provinces that are uh, slowly but surely getting some, getting themselves into a serious financial situation. Uh, by that, I mean that, you know, that, that the, the ideas, which all sound pretty good, are, are, being, uh, are being implemented without any consideration as to the why. Once again, are we, should we be doing this? Is it going to impact our future generations? Who is going to carry the burden of this uh, project or this idea or this initiative? And if we don't do that, what happens ultimately and what you see in all other uh, areas of our province that don't have um, you know fiscally conservative governments is you'll see that over time over generations over any number of, of years what you, what you'll find is that when things become too difficult to handle when it comes to government finances there's only really two ways of dealing with it and that's doing looking at massive cuts or or significant tax increases both of which 
are less than ideal. But one, uh, massive cuts mean less social programs for the population. People tend to leave. Uh, more taxes mean that people are, are uh, disincentivized from coming to that particular province. And so what you see then is this vicious, vicious cycle of what sort of transpires. When a province is very unattractive to move or invest in, I think that what you see is a reduced or, or decreasing tax base. And, um, you know, the advantage that we really have here in Alberta and in other uh, conservative provinces is that uh, the, the investment and the people are going exactly there. And you see the tremendous amount of demand for people coming to Alberta. There's a reason for that. There's a specific reason for that. People know that if they come to Alberta, they're going to be able to live in a province with the highest average incomes in the country, the lowest taxes and the best environment for uh, for for businesses to invest in. And again, that creates a very positive cycle, right? More investment in this province means more jobs, which means more higher wages. And uh, things are, are continuing on as they have been for many years. We had a little hiccup in 2015 to 2019 yeah. where, you know, Billions of dollars of debt and, and hundreds of thousands of jobs were chased away from this province. But we're right back on track. Uh, I think things are looking really great in this province, and I'm tremendously proud to be here. Yeah, well, I'm originally from Manitoba, and I know when I go back home and I buy anything, I go for a meal, and it's like an extra 3 or $4 on it. And you're like, wow, I'm never buying anything in another province again. <laughs> I just come to Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, I've got a sister that lives in Ontario. Uh, she lives in uh, London, Ontario, and uh, same issue goes. I yeah. love her to death. I'm visiting her, but I, I just don't don't see. Um, I, I wouldn't spend a whole lot of money over there because uh, I'd rather spend it here in Alberta. Yeah. Um, so with uh, our time left, I want to make sure we get some good depth on these topics here. So we got justice and bail reform. Um, maybe kind of talking on the bail side of things just to start. Uh, so we had the recent Bill C-48 go through. We had some changes to the bail reform. We don't have to get into the, the small details of that. I, I would hope people go out and read about it, especially on the law enforcement side. They should know about it. Um, but can you talk a bit about some of the change in protocol for the bail side of things uh, within the province? And on that, can you also explain where the uh, differentiation between federal and provincial, uh, I guess, jurisdiction on this issue is because I know feds have some say in it, but how much does the province control? How much does the province get to have a say and, and make change on this issue? Perfect. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, so I'll start off by sort of talking a little bit about the, the division of powers when it comes to uh, to this area. The federal government is certainly responsible and retains jurisdiction for dealing uh, over matters relating to the criminal code. And, uh, and certainly within uh, their jurisdiction is the ability to influence the bail system here in Canada. I want to take you back here, Nathan, just a little bit back, a little bit before my time, but an important uh, thing to know. Uh, and that is going back to 2019 with the federal government's decision to introduce Bill C-75. Yeah, Bill C-75 was an act to amend the Criminal Code, Youth Criminal Justice Act, and other acts. And it was described as a way of trying to help alleviate uh, some of the pressures uh, on the criminal justice system. And it was masked as a move to help 
provinces deal with the burden of dealing with a growing criminal justice system uh, by introducing something called the principle of restraint. Mm -hmm. What that means, uh, it requires any peace officer or judicial officer making a decision regarding the release of an accused to give primary consideration to the release of that accused at the earliest possible opportunity. And again, in addition to that, uh, on the least onerous conditions that are appropriate in the circumstances. And so that set the stage for all uh, the the problems I think that we've been encountering lately. And that is what you know a lot of people refer to as uh, the catch and release program or, or the yeah. crime initiatives. This was all directed and, and prompted by our federal counterparts. It did not work. And I think that every single province in this country and the territories had urged uh, our federal government to revisit this because it simply wasn't working. In January of 2023, I, I think this is really important. All Canadian premiers from the 13 provinces and territories signed a letter to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, urging that the federal government take immediate action to strengthen Canada's bail system because we saw that this was a real problem. Uh, now we'll bring. I'll come back to to what you were talking about a little bit later on, and that is Bill C forty eight, which was again another act to amend the criminal code, and it was essentially aimed at bail reform. This creates what's called a reverse onus. So if somebody is charged with some particular crime, and those are outlined in Bill C forty eight. The onus will shift from the crown proving or trying to prove that that individual accused uh, should not be released to an onus on that individual to actually prove why that individual should, in fact, be released. And so it's a reverse onus system. This is, I think, probably a more uh, effective way of, of dealing with some of those serious and repeat offenders. And I think it will bring what you know what we've talked about is common sense change to the bail reform system now of course it is brand new this was just recently uh passed and, and received the royal assent so we don't know exactly how it's going to be uh how what kind of an impact or how it's going to be handled by our uh, judicial uh officials but um i certainly think that you know we're, we're again we're cautiously optimistic we always say that we're cautiously optimistic any bail reform in, in, in the right direction is a good reform, and we're certainly going to be monitoring that very carefully to make sure that uh, high-risk high risk offenders and repeat offenders are kept out of our communities and uh, behind bars. Well, and on that, um, I know there's a component in there when a uh, justice or JP goes and releases somebody, they have to speak to why they release them, and I might not be saying the exact terms or something, but it's, it's something along those lines. One of the big things I know from at least frontline members is, you know, the ones who deal with the, the repeat uh, offenders out there. And they always wonder, you know, where's the accountability on the back end of the system? So judges, JPs, even Crown, if they're they're throwing things out or, or saying, hey, we're not going ahead with this case. So I like that there's a component there are you able to explain at all, like how, what kind of accountability comes out of that? So like if somebody makes a decision to release someone and they go, you know, the offender goes out and commits the same crime again or whatever happens, you know, does that come back on anybody at any point? Because I, I, I get that they can't like foresee the future and they're going based on the law, 
But does anything ever happen like, hey, you've been wrong five out of six times. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't have a good batting average here. So something's going to change. Yeah, uh, and that's, uh, I love the way that you put that. And uh, I wanted to take it, you know, talk about uh, there's, there's a few things, few layers here that I just want to address. Uh, when it comes to accountability of the Crown Prosecution Service, we're certainly regularly monitoring uh, what is happening within the Alberta Crown Prosecution Service. And my role as the Attorney General for the province of Alberta gives me the ability to introduce uh, uh, protocols or measures or, or policies that might help uh, our Crown prosecutors handle these issues. One of the things, and I think it overlaps with a little bit of your question earlier, and that is sort of what is the, um, the, the overlap between the two, uh, the, the province and the, and the federal government. One of the things that we'd have direct ability to uh, to work uh, on are the positions that prosecutors take. And in September of 2023, I introduced something called the bail practice protocol. And it was essentially, uh, or changes to the bail practice protocol, I should say, uh, which essentially provided guidance to prosecutors to seek the detention of accused individuals uh, in particular, repeat violent offenders, when the public safety is at risk, um, unless the, the the risk of that can be addressed by other bail conditions. A component of that uh, was that if a prosecutor was assessing a matter and decided not to seek the continued um, the continued detention of an individual, that prosecutor would have to provide notes and reasons as to why that individual prosecutor did not wish to proceed with the instructions on the bail practice protocol. I can tell you right now, I mean, I've, I've been practicing law uh, for, for more than 12 years, um, and I've had the opportunity to work in, in various areas. I can tell you right now that the defense bar here in Alberta is somewhat astounded at the hardline position that our Crown prosecutors are taking. And I say this with a little bit of a smile on my face because I, I have to say to you that where appropriate, I think that if our Crown prosecutors are developing a reputation that they will not consent to the release of a serious or violent repeat offender or somebody that's committed some serious domestic violence or intimate partner uh, violence uh, or crimes, I think that it would be appropriate for our prosecutors to to take a strong position when it comes to that. Yeah. Now, when when we talk about our our, our judiciary, um, you know, we first first and foremost, I want to make sure to stress that our system of government ensures that the judiciary is an independent branch uh, of, of uh, the, the the judiciary essentially operates as an independent branch. Uh, but I do believe. The, for the large uh, part that uh, judges do their absolute best to interpret the law, um, that they are using the tools that have been given to them by the federal and provincial government, and that they are applying uh, the law as, as it should be applied. The problem really stems here, and I have no problem saying this, the problem really stems with the laws that the judiciary are asked to interpret. And that is the problem here. When you have bills like C-75, which mandate the, the, the principle of restraint, as I talked about earlier, which tells a, uh, a judicial officer that you must make a decision with, the, um, with, with, with that in mind of the accused uh, to 
find a way to release that accused at, at the earliest probable uh, reasonable opportunity, sorry, and on the least onerous conditions. Well, that creates a real problem for our serious and violent criminals because they no longer take the issues of uh, bail decisions seriously. And many of them have learned far too quickly that they should not expect to see them uh, remanded for until trial and that they can continue to do what they've been doing. Yeah. So the reputation, I think, really focuses on, uh, sorry, the reputation of our criminal justice system uh, really stems on the the issue of, of what are, what, what are we doing as politicians to empower our judiciary and our prosecutors and everybody involved in dealing with this in an appropriate way? And I can I can tell you right now, I'm not convinced that the federal government has given the judiciary the tools they need. Yeah. And well, and you know what? One of the things that uh, has come up recently, and I just had a, a part of the discussion with someone else on this podcast, was just how uh, you can have a criminal warrant in another province, and it could be for serious offenses. And all you got to do is just go to the next province, and it's not uh, executable. You're not getting shipped back. So a lot of uh, the people are avoiding... Um, uh, accountability in that respect, uh, or in that way, just by going across provincial lines. I mean, we've had people with warrants out of Manitoba. We had one in particular, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and BC, and they were in Alberta. And um, I kind of maybe hoping this is like another project for you or something down the road. But um, looking at dealing with people, especially with Zoom or however we can do it, if you get if you have criminal warrants, you're not. Uh, getting away from that, right? Because the criminal is across Canada. I can understand if it was like provincial, give a ticket or something. Okay, the other province doesn't want to deal with that. But holding these people accountable, and a lot of them can be for some serious offenses. We've had people with robbery, uh, firearms offenses, just go to the next province and nothing's being done to you. No one's going to pay to ship you back. So I think there's a lot of different ways that we can look at uh, holding people accountable. I think a lot of it comes down to the policy side. Um, so, I mean, make a good point. And very rarely do I see uh, maybe the political side taking ownership of that, but I appreciate that very much. Um, yeah, so I, th- I think that's a big thing that we, you know, as frontline officers kind of want to see uh, a change in. Um, we definitely do like the changes that have happened. Uh, if you're kind of done on that point, I didn't know if you wanted to say anything else. No, I, I just wanted to uh, to emphasize uh, the importance of what you're saying and uh, how little the uh, the provinces and, and perhaps the federal government uh, have have taken in in the way of initiatives uh, to sort of link up all of the uh, provinces in a with a way of communicating with one another to help identify yeah. some of the challenges. Said, um, I also want to say that I'm very much aware of and very sympathetic to some of the frustrations that our frontline law enforcement agencies are experiencing. And and in particular, it is that process of laying an arrest or laying a charge and finding that individual right back on the streets the very next day, uh, rinse and repeat. And that's incredibly frustrating to both me and I think the vast majority of law enforcement officers in this province. Um, Again, uh, we're doing everything we can. We're, we're on the horn all the time. We're, 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 you know, shouting from the rooftops about how bail reform needs to change. And eventually, I think uh, there, there's really, they, the feds will have no choice but to start hearing us out and hearing the rest of the provinces. We're all unanimously complaining about the same issue. Yeah, yeah, 100%. 
Um, one of the things uh, we'll talk about here just on the justice side and some of the, the changes there, uh, these teams of prosecutors that are supposed to be going, I guess they're going between Edmonton and Calgary. They're based out of the two major cities um, and they have a focus on violent crime. You can talk a bit about how that's going to work and what exactly are they targeting when we say violent crime? Is it is it like linked to organized crime or, or gang stuff or is it just all violence? So if it's gang and domestic violence, uh, what exactly are they doing and focused on? Yeah, certainly. Um so what, what we thought about was, again, going back to, to some of our discussions about efficiencies, we thought about how can we empower our Crown prosecutors to deal with uh, problem offenders in the quickest and uh, most efficient way possible. And, and what it really stems down to is that prosecutors were spending a lot of time learning about an individual file, learning about the accused, studying the, the patterns, trying to figure out how to deal with an individual best. I thought it was very helpful to focus on particular areas and allocate specific prosecutors who could do nothing but prosecutions in a particular geographic area. I'll tell you why I think that's important. First and foremost, you become very familiar with the people who are involved because repeat offenders, their names come up all the time. The other thing that's equally important is having a prosecutor know the geography and the neighborhood that they're dealing with Mm -hmm. is very, very helpful when it comes to issues like bail and it comes to issues like describing and and, and detailing the evidence for judges. If a prosecutor is dealing with those same streets and neighborhoods and, 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 you know, sort of hangouts that these uh, repeat offenders are at, prosecutors are very quick at becoming really good at what they do once they do it over and over again. And I thought it didn't make sense to have a file randomly allocated to a prosecutor based on on other factors when we have this really obvious uh, advantage in in trying to get our prosecutors to become really familiar with the communities that they prosecute and so that's exactly what we've decided to do we know that Cal- downtown calgary and downtown edmonton are hotbeds for the types of violent and serious crimes that we we talk about and you you asked about some of those and i think you really got on uh, a bunch of them the serious gang-related crimes, the serious assaults, the serious drug offenses, um, <clears throat> intimate partner violence, which I think is uh, you know focused on those who have been previously discharged for an offense, and other violent crimes uh, that I think we all pretty much are well are well uh, aware of. Are those the types of those are the types of crimes that our individual prosecution teams will be prosecuting? What's more is that they'll also speak to bail for these offenders as well, mm-hmm. be involved in early stages of the prosecutions and in many of these circumstances, the trial of these individuals. So having that consistency and having that stability within our Crown Prosecution Service, having them uh, be able to prosecute in a particular area, I think will yield remarkable advantages. And keep in mind one other thing, Nathan, I think it's really important to note is that what we've simply done is we've done a, a reallocation of prosecution uh, prosecutors to these areas. And so it's not like we have, you know, um, taken prosecutors away from one area or one type of, uh, of issue and put them into another. No, the, the prosecutors have simply been restructured. And so we're going to have the same exact amount of prosecutors uh, performing these uh, the, this important work all across the province. 
The last thing I'll say to you is this. The, the Crown Prosecution Service here in Alberta is operating under a historic low vacancy rate of under 3% right now. And I think this is truly a testament. By the way, this is probably the envy of all government departments, but certainly it is a testament to the support and the, um, the, the close work that our department has been doing with the Crown Prosecution in making sure that workplace conditions and the balance between uh, their caseloads and, and the type of work that they do and all other factors is well respected so that they continue to do they can continue to do an excellent job for for this uh, province yeah well and you know what i think um it's good having these discussions like this um because even for from the front end or uh, frontline perspective knowing what uh you know the prosecutors might need i think there needs to be better communication we can certainly up that um and and have you know if if something doesn't go ahead the reasons why it didn't go ahead, having a little more communication in there um, with the officers and saying, hey, you know, we need these certain things ahead of time or while you're doing your investigation. Um, I think that's a big component to it uh, is the communication. Um, we're just coming up to the end of our time here. Uh, so, uh, Can I jump in here yeah. really quickly? Because I think there's something else that's just absolutely uh, phenomenal that is being developed by our uh, justice officials in the Crown Prosecution Service, and uh, that is our pre-charge assessment office. And I just wanted to explain uh, what that is and what it's intended to do. What we're doing is, and we're working with a number of police attachments right now across the province in a pilot program, but the, the pre-charge assessment office is intended to achieve exactly what you just described. It is a team of prosecutors who are going to be working hand in hand with the various police detachments in this province to review a matter um, very early in its onset, very early in a criminal complaint matter. The prosecutors and the police officers will be working together for any number of reasons. The first reason is to review the evidence uh, from the Crown Prosecution's perspective to determine whether there's a reasonable likelihood of conviction. I think that's very important because we don't want to subject people to lengthy and ongoing and expensive uh, court proceedings where the evidence doesn't support a conviction. But we also want to make sure that the Crown prosecutors weigh in at the very early stages of a charge or of an arrest to make sure that the evidence is all there. The, the, the pre-charge assessment office is also going to be tasked with looking at the quality of the evidence as well. And going back to our law enforcement agencies and saying, hey, look, maybe we should shore up this area, or it looks like your disclosure package is missing a video here, or maybe there's a charter notice that we need to be aware of in the future, and they can flag these things from a very early on onset. What we've seen in the pilots is that it results in a tremendous amount of, of resource savings. And that means that police officers and prosecutors are working hand in hand to um, to deliver a file that is um, of far better quality and far more complete than it's ever been in the history of this province. This is going to change everything when it comes to the quality of our prosecutions, and it will not bog down our prosecutors with cases that, for example, do not have the uh, the evidence for a conviction or, um, or or simply don't make sense to prosecute fully. There are so many good things coming along this with this Justice Department. I'm very, very excited about it. And I know that it's going to translate 
into tangible and real impacts for Albertans. Awesome. Well, you actually beat me to it because I usually end with, hey, anything coming down the pipeline, any new projects or anything. So there you have it. <laughs> um, well, that, 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 that's a big one. I know that you, uh, I know you know a little bit about the, about the body cams and yeah. I think that's important. Well, and it's important in, in two areas, really. It's important for police officers to record their encounters with, with individuals. And it's, I think, equally, if not more important to protect those police officers from the various allegations that we see as well. Police officers will have the, um, the, the proof right on, their, right on their uniforms. And I think that that's going to speak volumes as to how professional and how, how um, composed our police officers are in, in the encounters that they have to deal with. So that's going to be a wonderful one. The pre-charge assessment is going to be great. And I will promise you this, I will take away what you mentioned earlier with respect to coordinating with other provinces as it relates to outstanding warrants and other information as well. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, you know, one of the things uh, I did kind of want to get into, if we can, was just about um, communicating with the public and just what exactly, like, who's responsible for which step along the process. And you kind of brought it up a bit earlier and you were talking about, like, you know, the policy, the, the lawmaking is um, a bit of, a bit of the issue to blame for certain aspects. Usually in social media, people just say, well, why do the cops keep releasing somebody? But, um, I'm wondering like, how do you, how does the justice side of things decide, you know, we're going to put something out there or explain things to the public. Where do you best do that through even? Um, cause I, I don't have an answer, but I'm kind of looking for a solution. Like how are we communicating to the public? Um, maybe even students in school, who's responsible for what? How does this whole system work? And how can we kind of work better together? So oh, he got kind of want to take an answer or shot at an answer on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's it's always a challenge when we read in the media a sensationalized um, uh, headline and uh, the media, media likes to make things, uh, you know, very interesting for its readers. Oftentimes, there are certain things that are well aware to a uh, a prosecutor or a police officer involved in a, in a particular case or matter that does not make it public. Uh, certain things like the threshold that crown prosecutors need to operate under. Is there a reasonable likelihood of conviction here? That is important because if a prosecutor is dealing with a matter for which there is not a reasonable likelihood of uh, uh, conviction, it would be inappropriate for the prosecutor to continue on and, and sort of, you know, try his or her luck, if you will, I guess, for lack of a better term. I think that we have, uh, you know, an obligation to the public to prosecute those cases that do have a reasonable likelihood of conviction for any number of reasons. Number one, the accused and accused should not be uh, should not be forced to defend a case for which there is no evidence to support the allegations. Mm-hmm. Um the other thing is, uh, is this a, an appropriate use of the of public funds, right? We know our prosecutors and we know our courts are stressed already. And I would fo- I would prefer that they focus on those cases that they uh, they believe are, are genuinely um, triable and that there's a good likelihood of conviction because those are the ones that will have the best evidence for, to support the, the charges that were laid. Um, you know, 
when it comes to consulting with the public, I do I do want to talk about some of the things that we do because I think this is absolutely an important uh, topic to, to bring up. As the Justice Department, we're typically seen uh, in a way that deals so basically with the courts, with the jails, with the judges, and, and with the police officers and whatnot. And the fact of the matter is that I want this Justice Department to have a very different uh, perception with the public. I want them to know that there are so many wonderful things that we do as well. That, uh, of course, the safety of all Albertans and their families is always going to be my top priority and in fact the top priority of this government but we will we also look at some wonderful initiatives to help with uh dealing with um you know things in our in our justice system and in our legal system that are uh not what you would typically associate with uh, a, a justice department things like um the challenges the stress the anxiety of dealing with family issues and I think this is important because, you know, the impact on children and the impact on, on the families is something that we don't talk about enough. And so we're introducing a bunch of different initiatives, one of which includes a family justice strategy to help families deal with their problems at the very early onset in, in for example, a, a mediated uh, approach. Can we have these families sit down and mediate? with a, um, you know, using somebody who the government uh, provides to help address some of those very early issues, which maybe could be solved at the very beginning of a, of a uh, split or separation. What this does is it allows families to deal with things in a far less stressful environment. Going to court is incredibly stressful, even for a lawyer. Yeah. And I can't imagine somebody who's never been there isn't going to feel a lot of anxiety. Having it in a you know, informal mediation session, I would say is probably the, the most appropriate way of, of beginning this approach. Leaving the courts as a matter of last resort is something that I think that we're going to try and develop even further. In December, we launched our family justice strategy that's been rolled out in Edmonton and Calgary. I'm very much looking forward to expanding that across this province and allowing families to help deal with their issues. Look, we're not going to we're not going to do away with the problem of, of family splits and family breakups, but if I can affect uh, the the ability to make it as least intrusive as possible when it comes to dealing with uh, with issues of parenting and, and custody and access and, and support, whatever else uh, might come up, I, I'm very much in favor of doing that. So I hope that... Um, you know, when it comes to to reaching out to the public and your question about what we're doing to help Albertans understand what the Justice Department really is, um, this is just one small drop in the bucket yeah. in in some things that we're we're developing uh, over and above. You know, that typical association with with crime and and penalties and prosecutions and whatnot. Yeah, I think like when you know uh, if they put out in the news, you know, somebody didn't uh, their theft charge or mischief, it didn't go ahead because it just wasn't in the interests of, of the courts uh, or whatever it might be. But when we see, like, uh, there was a recent news on somebody who got out uh, for uh, child porn uh, accusations, but also a criminal documented criminal history of it, and sometimes things can't go ahead for Jordan decisions, uh, I think it'd be nice if there was, like, a place uh, where it was kind of explained as much as possible 
I know everybody's kind of got their rights to privacy and, and different things, but I think that's just kind of what the, the public's like hungry for more in-depth information, kind of like the podcast. It's like everyone's kind of sick of just the headlines and the, the tweets and the shouting back and forth. It's like we want some some content. We want some depth to this and explain to us, like educate us on why exactly are these decisions made the way they are. Um, for me, kind of one of those big components is getting right into the schools. So, you know, university would be a good one, but maybe even high school, we start teaching people, like, this is how the whole system works. You're about to be an adult. Like, you better get involved and, and get in the know. So I think that's something that, you know, everybody could do a better job on. Um, with the the remainder of our time, I did want to ask a bit about the org crime side of things and, and gangs, just because that's kind of near and dear to me with where I work. Um, but with all the stuff kind of going on right now where they talk about foreign influence, um, there's, you know, the whole connection between geopolitics, uh, outside governments and, and local crime groups. Does that come across the province's desk a whole lot? Because I know the feds are kind of getting put through the ringer with this right now. But, but where does that come in at the provincial level? How aware is the province of those things? And, and then what's what's kind of done at the provincial level for that? Well, it would be absolutely right for me to say to you that, uh, you know, organized crime gangs and in fact cartels are looking to Canadian provinces to, to operate. Uh, we know that, you know, they are here, that they are trying to establish roots in, in the province of Alberta and elsewhere. And we're certainly very much surprised of the situation uh, as it relates to the uh, policing and justice efforts to make sure that they don't find a, uh, a safe, uh, safe place here in Alberta. I, I remember uh, being interviewed for the Calgary Sun some time ago and talking to, uh, to Rick Bell and saying that Alberta will never, ever be a club med or organized crime. We will never, ever give them an environment for them to operate in, and we will never make it peaceful for them to operate in this province. And that's exactly what I intend to do. I will dedicate every resource in my ministry to make this the most hostile province and the most uncomfortable place for any organized crime to operate. And that's sort of where the precursor to what led to um, to some of the work that we did with uh, our, our targeted Crown Prosecution Service. These are the folks that are going to be able to identify very quickly once they see names popping up over and over again. Wait a minute. There's something here that doesn't sound right. This, you know, this individual newcomer, but we're seeing his or her name come up more and more often. Let's take a closer look at this. And the only way to do that is to make sure that the same people are prosecuting the same types of crimes in the same areas. We know from some of the discussions we've had with law enforcement in Calgary and Edmonton that some some gangs are are setting up uh, in the various areas, and we've seen a lot of the. Um, the, the, the issues with the, the Edmonton encampments, we've seen the encampments popping up at, um, you know, basically unprecedented rates up in Edmonton where, where you know, you're seeing these tents and these, these groups set up all over the, the city. And we were able to meet with um, Police Chief McPhee, and we learned very quickly that the gangs were using them as so, sort of open-air drug markets. Mm -hmm. they, were, they were infiltrating the encampments, they were taking advantage of, of some of the most vulnerable people in society, and they were using their, you know, superior advantage through threat or otherwise. 
to create an environment where people who were in these encampments were forced to depend on them for basic living. For example, access to the water fountain, access to pathways, access to bridges, um, or even staying encampments altogether. Well, I was going to say, and what's funny, the same th- in the same kind of space, they're depending on them for those things, but also for protection. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to protect you, you know, but I'm also going to do harm to you if you don't pay your tax. <laughs> it's it's ridiculous how this has become transpired. And then we see the the, the positions of, of the, the left-wing uh, agencies who are arguing that these are safe places for, for people. The shelters that we have in this province, the shelters that the government is supporting uh, are safe places for people who need a place to stay. Uh, and there's nobody on this planet can, that can convince me that living in an encampment that is being run by a gang is safer than being in a shelter uh, here in this province. Um, we are we are very much aware of what is happening. We are very much aware of the attempts. Uh, and I can tell you that I have every available resource uh, that the premier and this government has given me to combat that issue. And I don't think that uh, we're going to let that transpire lately. We're going to continue to chase them all across the province, all four corners, and make sure that there is no uh, safe place or, or comfortable place for them to set up shop. I appreciate the answer. Um, so we're just coming up to the end of time. I want to give you a second just to say how people can follow you and your work, uh, social media, specific websites, anything. Absolutely. Uh, we maintain a, an active uh, Facebook account, Mickey Amory, a member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta. I think it'll be pretty easy to find. Another thing that we do is we're active on Twitter. You can also reach me at ministryofjustice at gov.ab.ca. And we do our best, despite the fact that we get thousands of emails, we do our best to try and respond to each and every one of them. You can call my office in Edmonton and, and speak to um, the, the office uh, there for any questions that you might have. And most certainly, you can uh, message us on, on Facebook or, or elsewhere, and uh, we endeavor to, and we try very much to reply. In fact, I try to reply to a lot of the uh, the, the emails and the, the, the DMs that I get, and uh, you might just get a response directly from me. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, we're just at the end of time. I'll say thanks for coming on. If you can hang on for two seconds, just offline i'll say bye i'll just remember remind everybody just if they can uh share like comment uh the quiet professional and uh, we'll see you next time thank you so much for having me and uh the last thing that i want to say is this um the support and and the follows on social media are are very very much uh, appreciated and i'm very grateful for those who do because it gives me the opportunity to deliver my message directly to you mm-hmm. Typically, it goes uh, to the those who are are following our our uh, social media pages at the very beginning. That's the first source of, of news, and I think it's the best source of news because you'll hear it right from me. So, thank you all for listening to me, and looking very much, Nathan, to seeing you again and, and talking to you in this podcast uh, again and again. We have some wonderful news developing, and I think that uh, your viewers and your listeners would would really appreciate hearing it. Appreciate it very much, sir. We'll talk again. Thank you.